Just a note before we start. Our show talks about touchy subjects that may be difficult for some of our listeners. Take care of yourself. If you feel you need to seek help, see the links at the end of our show notes for resources. Welcome back to Touchy Subjects. I'm Sean. I'm Allie. And I'm Amanda. And today we're going to be discussing domestic violence. Yeah, we have done uh, a domestic violence 101 episode way back when we first started, which was uh, a year and a half ago. Um, and we wanted to re-record it for a couple of reasons. One, we've figured out this recording thing a little bit better, so sound <laughs> quality might be uh taking up a couple notches you mean our you mean our audio sounds a little bit better than all of us sitting around one microphone <laughs> it does you guys it was an interesting experience starting to figure out how to do this podcast um a second reason is that sierra is no longer with us and we miss her very much but we also love our co-host uh amanda so we want her voice on this really important topic um, and the third reason is that it is the beginning of October, which is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And this is the perfect time for us to uh, kind of go over, review the basics of uh, what domestic violence is um, and see see where the conversation takes us. Yeah, domestic violence is something that impacts a lot of people in our communities and oftentimes doesn't receive enough attention or at least the correct attention when conversations around domestic violence happen because it ends up being well why don't victims leave why don't what did the victim do to cause the violence to happen in the first place or why don't they try to solve the problem by doing x y or z um, and really those are not helpful things when discussing domestic violence because it puts the onus on the victim of the violence instead of discussing what behaviors domestic violence looks like what are some green flags of a healthy relationship? And really kind of have focused the conversation around what things we can do to prevent violence versus what things are being done and how do we just kind of help victims. Which conversations on helping victims are very important, but we also need to have conversations around what we can do to prevent domestic violence. Right. And that's the goal. Um, you know, we all know that there are plenty of victims out there and we want them to receive services. We want them to, you know, get the help that they, they need and they deserve. But really, our goal is to prevent any of those victimizations from happening in the first place. And we can only do that through prevention. We can only accomplish prevention through talk. Yeah. Uh, I think that we should start by just defining what domestic violence is. I think that would be a good baseline for the start of this episode. So we define domestic violence as a pattern of controlling behavior that's carried out by one person in a relationship. And that that um, those patterns are, are to maintain power and control over the other person. So there's three really important parts of this definition. One, domestic violence is a pattern. Um, so let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. Um, so we're all human. We're not perfect, regardless of how much we like to think we are, because I like to think that I'm pretty close, but we are going to make mistakes. So that's where that pattern of abuse is necessary. So for example, if I were to go through my partner's phone or like something like that, where it's 
not a behavior that I've done before in the relationship. And my partner tells me they don't like it when I do that. And I change that behavior. That was me making a mistake. I made a mistake in the relationship. I corrected it when my partner told me that they didn't like me doing that. And I no longer do that behavior. There's no pattern there. Now, if I were to say, go through my partner's phone and they tell me not to do that and I do it again anyway, and I do it again and again, there's now a pattern of that behavior. And a lot of times these patterns of behaviors are going to be multiple different unhealthy or abusive behaviors in the relationship, not just those one-offs. I do it again and again, there's now a pattern of that behavior. And a lot of times these patterns of behaviors are going to be multiple different unhealthy or abusive behaviors in the relationship, not just those one-offs. Right. So the second part of that definition um, is that it's a pattern of controlling behaviors carried out by one person in a relationship towards the other. Let's talk about that for a minute. It's one person to the other. So this starts off with a feeling of inequity in a relationship, right? Because one person feels that they have this innate right to exert this power and control over another person in the relationship yeah i also think that this this pulls in the idea that a lot of people have about domestic violence that whoever is being victimized somehow has a part in it um they did something to cause the other person to act the way they did to um exhibit that behavior etc and that's just not true um this is something that happens from one person in a relationship to the other, regardless of what that other person does. Um, and then the last part is that it's to maintain power and control. Yeah. So like Amanda was um, alluding to there, the power and control dynamic is one of the more important pieces of it because one person feels like that they are entitled to or they deserve to have more power in the relationship or they, that they believe that they are the lead or that they are the ones that are supposed to be making the decisions. And that's not how relationships work. We say it's a... Not healthy ones yeah, anyway. not healthy ones. We say that it's a partnership. Partnerships are 50-50 for the most part. Yeah, some days it's going to be 40-60 because someone's not feeling super great. But for the most part, that relationship is going to be even. You have to be treated as equals in the relationship. And that doesn't necessarily mean that one partner follows all these rules and the other one follows the rules that have been set up. It means, hey, my partner had a rough day. Maybe I'll do the cooking today for them. Or I'm off doing something. So my partner is the one who takes care or cleans the house. It's filling in the gaps for each other where that equality is a piece of it, not me having the expectation that my partner should be doing X, Y, and Z because that is their role in the relationship. Unfortunately, those roles uh, tend to go into those gender roles that people tend to have. And that's not to say that all domestic violence relationships are male and female relationships because that's obviously not true. But uh, a, a large part of the history of domestic violence has kind of been rooted in some of those gender roles as well. Especially when we know a rigid adherence to gender roles, it's one of the risk factors of an unhealthy or an abusive relationship. And again, that's not to say that if both people in the relationship want to follow those gender roles, that's a bad or an unhealthy relationship. If both people want to do that, that's perfectly fine. But if one person feels like they have to do those things or a partner is forcing their other partner to fall in the line of those gender roles, that's when it's a problem. 
Right. Um, and Amanda, you bring up another point that I think is kind of a natural segue uh, to a next thing to talk about, which is who domestic violence happens to, or rather who experiences domestic violence. Um, let's talk about that a little bit. So we know that domestic violence basically knows no bounds. It affects people from all ages, all races, all religions, all socioeconomic classes. There is no one that domestic violence can't touch. Um, and I think that that's something that people, it's something that people know, but they don't really understand it because you have that implicit bias that kind of takes you back to the thought of the victim is a person who looks like this and the abuser is a person who looks like this. And we have to really work hard to make sure that everyone understands and knows that domestic violence can happen to anyone. Yeah. Um, and kind of expanding upon that just a little bit further, while domestic violence can happen to anyone, there are intersections. So somebody's gender identity, someone's sexual orientation, somebody's racial identities, those do intersect with domestic violence. Um, but again, domestic violence can affect and does affect everyone. Yeah, absolutely. There are certainly populations that are more at risk for experiencing domestic violence, um, and those tend to be marginalized communities. Um, people of color, um, those of lower income status, um, lower socioeconomic status, um, those with language barriers in their own country, um, those in the LGBTQIA population, those with an undocumented status, um, those types of populations do are at, are at a higher risk of experiencing domestic violence. Um, but that is not to say that that is the only, those are the only communities where this happens, um, or those are the only type of relationships. And so we always want to kind of, I know that that can seem um, a little two-sided, you know, on one hand, it can happen to anybody, but on the other hand, these, it happens more to these people. But we want to, to, to give our listeners the whole gamut of, you know, yes, this can happen to anyone, but we're, if we're looking to prevent things, we also have to hone in on certain um, populations that kind of went off that tangent, but. Yeah, but it's really this, the whole point of prevention in general. If you're preventing one form of violence, you're preventing all forms of violence. And you have to take into account the intersections of people's identities when having discussions on prevention, because if you're not, then you're not recognizing the very important piece that people's identities have with their rates of victimization. And if we're trying to prevent everyone from being a victim, we have to recognize what populations are impacted the most and then what things can we work on to make them not be impacted more often than any other group of people. Yeah. Um, so I guess another, another thing to talk about, uh, you know, we kind of just went to a more societal view of what domestic looks like in prevention. Um, but really, I, I think that our listeners, we should review with our listeners what what red flags look like. What does domestic violence look like in act, um, either to the person that it's happening to, um, or for support people that are concerned about somebody in a relationship? 
Yeah. Um, I don't know how we did this the last time we recorded this episode a year and a half ago now. Um, but the way that I often discuss domestic violence is I break down abusive behaviors into one of four different categories being physical abuse. So any type of abuse that is a physical action that someone's doing to someone else that they, that it's intended to hurt them. Emotional abuse being any kind of abuse that is going to be hurting their self-esteem or make them feel bad about themselves. Sexual abuse being any kind of abuse that is a sexual act that someone's doing to someone else they didn't want. And then social abuse, which is any kind of abuse that is going to hurt somebody's social life or make it difficult to maintain relationships they have with their friends and their family. Yeah, I think that's a great way to do it. Uh, because another uh, another aspect of domestic violence is that it is not just physical, uh, which is something that is in the general population in the general population's um, misunderstanding of domestic violence. So let's start with physical abuse and what that actually might look like. So physical abuse can start from anything as simple as grabbing someone's arm, gripping their hand too tightly in an effort to like hold them in place or bring them closer to you. Um, And it can include an insane array of things all the way up to strangulation um, and murder. Um, So it's kind of hard to just like put a pinpoint on these physical acts constitute physical abuse because there's so many of them. But some of the most common ones that we see are the hitting, the slapping, the punching, um, like I said, strangulation, seeing um, that bruising. Uh, other ones that I'll add to it, um, just like blocking exits or doors. So like yes. if there's an argument or one person wants to leave the room to cool down or de-escalate the argument, but then the partner blocks the door and says, no, we're finishing this right now. So it can escalate the argument further. Or like breaking objects or throwing objects. And typically in these situations, the victim stuff is usually the stuff that's broken. Hardly ever is the abuser stuff broken because they realize that if they break something of their own, they've only punished themselves. Where it's going to have a greater impact on their victim if they can take something of theirs, especially something they love or they care about, or that was given to them from someone who they really care about, and break that because that's just going to have a bigger impact on them emotionally. And just because uh, everybody loves pets, um, abusing pets also can fall under emotional or physical abuse. Just because it's the physical action of abusing a pet, it's kind of hard to emotionally abuse a pet. Just because, like, if I were to go to my friend's house and just try to call their dog to me, and I'm like, oh, come here, stupid, come here. They're still going to come to me because they know, like, I'm saying something in a high-pitched tone so it sounds nicer, so they're going to come and running over to me. They don't know I'm being mean. But it's the physical abuse because they're physically harming the pet, but they're doing it to send their victim a message, too. And that message is, look what I can do to this animal what do you think I could do to you? And then abusing that pet leaves that kind of barrier there for their victim because if they were to leave but they can't bring their pet, they may stay to keep the pet safe. Yeah, I I think to wrap up physical abuse, everybody has the right to be absolutely safe in their own body and in their relationship. And if you are questioning whether or not something is physical abuse, it probably is. Um, If it's something that is unwanted or intentional to cause injury or fear or or threats it is not okay um 
So that's kind of one category of abusive behaviors. Um, Sean, I think the next one you said was emotional. So let's talk about, yep. is that right? Emotional? Yeah. Yep. Emotional. Um, so let's talk about emotional, uh, emotional, emotionally abusive behaviors that are red flags or are commonly seen in domestic violence situations. So my favorite one to talk about in emotional abuse is using jealousy to justify their actions just because it's probably that first red flag or warning sign of an unhealthy or abusive relationship in which I always have to point out, yeah, I'm sure you have felt jealousy before. And if you haven't, I can guarantee that you will at some point because it's common. But it's important that if our partners are jealous of us, we either work with them to overcome the jealousy or we tell them, hey, you shouldn't be jealous of this and you need to work on that instead of us having to change our behavior. Because if we have to change our behavior when our partner is acting jealous, that's when it starts to get controlling. So I'll add that emotional abuse is anything that is intended to make the other person feel something that the abuser wants them to feel, right? They want them to feel lesser than. They want them to feel pain. They want them to feel insecure. They want them to feel like um, they will never be loved anywhere else. Um, it's basically manipulating their emotions to make sure that they are the ones in control of their partner's emotions, right? So this harkens back to that power and control. That is why people um, exhibit these emotionally abusive behaviors. It's not because they like uh, seeing, you know, the other person emotionally hurt, although that that could be true. Um, but it's more so the fact that they can control how that other person um, and like the behaviors they will exhibit to have that control over the other person will escalate. So it, makes, it might start with things like, why do you always, you know, leave your dishes in the sink? Or, um, you know, why don't you clean up after yourself? And then it might transition to, you're so lazy. Why can't you take care of these dishes? And after that, it should be, it could be, um, you're the woman of this house. Why can't you do this one thing that I've asked you to don't let it happen again. And you can see how things like that escalate. Um, so I don't know if that helps, but that's how I kind of, uh, how I kind of categorize emotional abuse. And just that, that feeling of, um, you know, nobody else is going to put up with the behavior that I'm putting up with and you're you should just you should always just be here with me because you're not going to find anything any better anywhere else um because all of these things that you do wrong that i let you get away with and it's beating down that self-esteem to a point where somebody really honestly doesn't think that they deserve any better than it yeah and they can even add in things like blaming them for the abuse. So like, if you wouldn't have done this, I wouldn't have had to hit you. I'm trying to make their victim feel like the abuse is their fault because if they feel like it's their fault, they're probably not going to talk about it to anyone. And it also gets them to start changing some of their behaviors. Because if I'm being told I'm being abused because of X, Y, or Z, I may eventually change X, Y, or Z in an attempt to get the abuse to stop happening. It won't stop. It'll change for another reason. But that's what I'm going to think because that's what I'm being told, especially by someone who I love and care about. Right. Yeah. And I will say, too, that um, I have seen plenty of 
people that have been in abusive relationships that have never been touched inappropriately by their partner in their life. Um, but I have yet to see an abusive relationship that has zero forms of emotional abuse. So I would say that this is, is the most common type of abuse. And it's, it, it not only is it painful for victims, but it's so controlling in the way that it affects not only how they behave and how they see their partner, but whether or not they're able to leave and how they can heal afterwards. Um, so emotional abuse can be really a debilitating uh, type of abuse in domestic violence situations. And, and it's sneaky. Right. 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 Like they're manipulative. They're sneaky. They're using this as a way to like creep in the back door of domestic violence because most relationships that end up abusive don't start off as physically abusive. They start off as emotionally abusive. And then things will escalate through the emotions and into physical. And just to kind of like expand upon that just a little bit. Amanda does not mean that an abusive relationship starts out abusive. An abusive no. relationship is never going to start abusive. They'll be really loving and caring because they need you to love and care about them first. Exactly. And then the emotional and social abuse, which we'll talk about in a bit, will work its way in. So if it gets to the physical or sexual abuse, if it ever does, they've been so beaten down by the emotional and social abuse that they might feel like they deserve the abuse that they're experiencing. Which is not true. Nobody ever deserves any any type of abuse. So, um, yeah. So I think that, that does a good job. I mean, we could talk about each type of abuse um, for multiple episodes, or we could do entire podcasts <laughs> on each type of abuse. Mm -hmm. um, I think that generally sums up what emotional abuse looks like. Now, the, the third category that we want to talk about is that sexual abuse. So, Let's talk about that. Yeah. So again, sexual abuse being any kind of abuse that is a sexual act that someone's doing to someone else they don't want. And one of the ones that I point out a lot with this one is just um, unwanted sexual attention, but basically sexual sexual harassment, because it's on the person who's on the receiving end to determine if it was sexual harassment or not. So they can't say things like, oh, I was kidding or joking, or they took it the wrong way, or I didn't mean to touch them like that. Because if it, that person feels like it's sexual harassment, it's sexual harassment. And they have every right to get that person to stop doing whatever it is that they were doing. And sexual abuse in a relationship um, can look like a variety of things. And it can be something that's almost kind of subtle. And again, back to that manipulative part where, okay, I don't feel like being intimate right now, but I'm going to have to listen to the complaining and the continual asking of my partner to be intimate, and I just don't want to deal with it, so we'll just do it. Yeah, I mean, this is another one where we could tell you, we could, you know, sit here and rattle off every single behavior we could think of that might be considered sexual abuse. But the, the fact is, if it is sexual in nature, and if it is something that one person does not want, but does because they are forced, they're forced or coerced to, um, then that's abusive, right? And so that's something that individuals have to determine for themselves. Did I want that? 
Um, did I truly want that? And, you know, did they, was I coerced into doing it? You know, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, one of the, um, just one of the ways that I help my students kind of understand like this aspect of it is just asking them how many of them clean their rooms and then how many of them actually like cleaning their rooms. Usually most of their hands go up when I ask about the cleaning the room and very few of them keep their hand up when I ask that they like doing it. And then I ask the students to put their hands down. Well, why do they do it in the first place then? If they don't like doing it, why do it? Because they know that there's going to be a punishment from their parents if they don't. If you feel like there's going to be a punishment from your partner for choosing to say no to doing something sexual with them, that's probably a good sign that it's sexual abuse. Right. Um, and just to clarify, we are definitely not saying that, that making your kids clean their room is abusive in any way. <laughs> Let's clear that up right now. That's not abusive. Those are two very different <laughs> categories. So either parents hear us out. That's not what we're saying. If you're a teenager, hear us out. That is not what we're saying. You still need to clean your rooms. Very different categories. Yes, it's just a very good analogy. Sorry, parents. Yeah. No. Um, and then moving on to the last one is is social abuse. And I think I'm going to go out on a limb. Might not even be a limb, but I'm going to say this is one that people understand the least, um, or the type of abuse that. Um, is the least talked about, the least um, recognized, recognized for sure. Uh, so let's talk about some of the, the ways that social abuse can be seen in domestic violence. Yeah, so this is going to be something obviously hurting their social life. So trying to isolate their victim from their friends and their family. Um, my favorite one to talk about with this one is like is just going through your partner's phone or going onto their social media without their permission mainly because the purposes of that is trying to catch quote-unquote their partner doing something that they quote-unquote shouldn't be doing or talking or talking to someone they shouldn't be talking to and a lot of times victims or my students will tell me things like their partners are saying well what can't you trust me if you trusted me you'd let me go through your phone if you didn't have anything to hide yes if you had nothing to hide you would let you'd be fine with me going through your phone you have the right to your own personal like space and boundaries and everything even in your relationships and you don't need to let your partners go through your phone the only reason they're going through your phone is to try and catch you doing something that you shouldn't be doing and that means that they don't trust you and that means it's either a conversation you got to have with them or just a relationship to get out of because if you can't trust the person you're dating why are you dating them right and you know to say that you have to prove your loyalty or prove your commitment to the relationship by letting your partner go through this phone and and see that you're not doing anything that they think you shouldn't be doing is is just a, a huge red flag. Right. And a couple of other examples of social abuse would include, you know, isolating somebody from their family or their friends. So making them feel like... Um, I'm the only person that you have. This is the only thing that matters. Um, or even physically moving somebody from place to place. That can be a, a huge red flag of social isolation too. Um, another category under social um, abuse is financial abuse. And I think we should talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So sometimes when, I'm, when I end up discussing financial abuse, I throw it under either emotional or social because really there's implications of both emotional and social in it 
But if we're looking at financial abuse in terms of like making it so they get their partner fired from their job or making it so their partner always shows up late to work, making it so that they can't, you know, better their life by getting that job or that promotion. But we could also throw into that, uh, making it so that they can't study for like a test or an exam or get their education because it also hinders their ability for more financial gain in the future. And abusers doing these things to make it so their victim becomes reliant on them. What are we missing? Well, in financial abuse, we can also talk about how um, in those situations, an abuser may either convince their partner they make enough money for the both of them, so now they're a stay-at-home parent, so they don't have a job, or if they have a job, they'll take their paychecks so their victim has no access to the money, or they only have a bank account with the abuser's name on it, or they have a house and a car, but only the abuser's name is on those things, making it so their victim doesn't really have any financial resources available to them. And it'll start off as something that almost seems sweet, right? Like, no, I want to take care of you. I want you to stay home and be able to raise our children. And you don't have to worry about money because I'll make enough money for both of us. And you can stay here and you can you can do this wonderful thing. And that sounds nice to people in the beginning because everybody has a little bit of a want to be cared for. And so when you have somebody who's offering to take care of you and it sounds so dreamy and romantic especially in those beginning stages of relationships you're going to you're going to potentially do it and then once you've moved in with them and you've quit your job and you are now having kids together and you're home taking care of them and now you feel like you have no way to escape that cycle i'll also point out that if you want to be a stay-at-home parent and your partner is financially secure enough to be able to do that, that is fine. If you are being forced to be a stay-at-home parent when you don't want to, that is when it is a problem. Because, for example, I can't wait for the day to be a stay-at-home dad. That is the dream. But I'm sure I will still work part-time because I would go crazy. Yeah. No, definitely. I, I think with anything that we talk about, it's it is all based on what you want, what you truly want, if you have expressed that to that partner, um, and if they disregard it, uh, or, or force you to do otherwise. Um, so I really think that that's the basis of it. And again, social abuse it, it encompasses a lot of different things. I mean, it has a lot of intersections with emotional abuse, too. Uh, but I think those are some of the most um, the most common ones that we see. Yeah. Um, and to just make it clear to the audience, with domestic violence, we alluded to it earlier, you mentioned it, but the abusive person needs their victim to love and care about them first before they can start getting away with some of the abusive things. Because if you go on a first date with someone and they punched you in the face, you're never going out with them again. If you're on that first date with someone and they called you fat or ugly, you're never going out with them again. So they have to be loving and caring first. And this is an example I'm pretty sure I used in our first domestic violence one as well. But how many of you listening know someone in your friend group that if you needed to get rid of a body, you could call them up to get rid of it? Or if your friend called you up, if you would help them get rid of a body? I know I have friends who I'd be able to do that with because we've had this conversation before. Now, hopefully... We can all also all agree, murder is bad. <laughs> and we would never murder somebody. But we're not going to make justifications for every murderer. 
But if it's our friend, I'm sure there was a reason for it. They're a nice person. They would never kill someone. Or they had to at least have had a reason to have to kill someone. We'll make justifications because we love and we care about them. An abuser needs their victim to love and care about them. So their victim can start making those justifications like, oh, he just had a bad day. Or, oh, she's just really going through something right now. It's not normally like this. And they're not going to be abusive 100% of the time. Because if they were, it would be very easy for us to recognize that person is abusive. They'll be loving and caring most of the time. It's just sometimes they're going to be abusive. Right. Yeah. It increases. Abusive behaviors increase both in frequency and severity over the lifetime of a relationship. Um, and so they're gonna it's gonna start out just like any other relationship. There's probably going to be genuine feelings of love and care for the other person, uh, which later on down the road just complicates things when people, if uh, if somebody that has experienced abuse decides to leave. Um, now that brings me to the next thing, which is a question we get all the time. It's a question that survivors get all the time, um, and I think it's just kind of this underlying uh, misunderstanding about abuse is if it is so bad why doesn't that person just leave yeah so the barriers that people face to be able to leave an abusive relationship um can vary all the way from like we were talking about that love and commitment feeling um and then all of the other forms of abuse that have been placed upon that person so the financial barriers because of financial abuse, the social barriers because of the social abuse. If you don't have a support system because you've been isolated from your friends and family, you might not know where to go or where to get help from. Mm -hmm. A lot of victims might feel like they're scared of what their partner could do if they did try to leave either to themselves or their victim or to their animal or to loved ones. Because of the threats they may have experienced, they may just feel like they're never finding anybody, anybody better than them because of what they've been told by their abusive partner, or just simply that they feel like no one is going to believe them. More often than not, in fact, I'm fairly confident saying almost every time somebody decides to talk about their domestic violence to someone, it's to a friend first. It's not going to be law enforcement. And if their friend says things like, oh, he's a nice guy, he would never do that, or I don't think he's abusive, or not believe them, they have drastically decreased the likelihood that, that victim ever even reports it to law enforcement or seeks out help. Right. And that doesn't even take into account the basic necessities of leaving a relationship, abusive or not. It, there are barriers to leaving a relationship, period. Um, for example, where am I going to live? Do I have the finances to go out on my own? What about our kids? Um, what about this debt that I've, that we, that we share? Uh, what, what is my family going to think? What is my, my religious community going to think? Um, so there's, there's all of those basic things that people grapple with when they're in healthy relationship that they want to end, um, let alone one that, that is abusive. And then you have to look at all of these barriers that people face in their abusive relationships and then look at some of those different, 
different groups of people who also experience domestic violence and realize that those groups of people all face specific barriers based on their identity in addition to all of the ones we've already talked about. So if you want to talk about someone in the LGBTQIA community now has a barrier of outing themselves if they go to the police or if they go to their family or if they go to their friends. If they're not open with their sexual orientation or their sexual identity, then that's a huge barrier to being able to receive assistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if anybody is listening and wants more information on those intersections, we have done episodes on the intersections of domestic violence in the LGBTQIA community. We've done one on the black community as well. We've also talked about recently um, barriers that men specifically may face. Um, So every group of people faces unique barriers to their own identities that need to be taken into account as well while working with people experiencing domestic or sexual or for this purposes for domestic violence, but sexual violence too. But knowing that if we work on focusing on the main specific barriers, that's great but we can't ignore the intersections or ignore the person's identities while helping them. I think it's a great way to say it. Um, now, I think the the final thing for us to talk about in this episode to kind of wrap things up um, is centered around the fact that October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, uh, which is fantastic. Love awareness months. We think they're great. We participate. We wear purple ribbons this month. Um, but what can people do to actually make a difference? You know, what, what can, what can our audience do to actually feel like October as Domestic Violence Awareness Month is something that is significant? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've said it before in episodes, we've done episodes on um, domestic violence in the media. We've done episodes where we ruin Disney princesses a little bit. Um, It's my favorite thing to do, honestly, but (laughs) using Domestic Violence Awareness Month almost as a launching point for discussions with people in your lives. Learn to look at the relationships we're seeing in media and recognizing the unhealthy things there. Because if we recognize the unhealthy things in the relationships between like Belle and Beast or Cinderella and Prince Charming or Ariel and Eric, we learn the ability then to be able to recognize them in our own. And that way we're not then just passing off those signs of unhealthy unhealthy stuff in those relationships as signs of love. When we stop idolizing those things. Yeah, it's my favorite thing to ask my students. Like, ladies, if you were at a prom and you dance with a guy like that night and you lose a shoe and then he stalks the city looking for you, that's not romantic, but that's the plot line of Cinderella. So we learn that some of the unhealthy things that we will experience in our own relationships are okay or acceptable. So we learn to accept especially the more early red flags or warning signs of abuse in a relationship. So by the time we recognize it, we're already being abused. Yeah, I, I, would, say, I would always say, and I think this is probably how we ended or how we have ended multiple episodes, but just educate yourself. Um, stay curious about things. If you, if there's something you don't understand, you know, if we, if we've said a word today, or if we've explained an abusive behavior that you aren't quite, you know, wrapping your head around, Google it, 
you know, like look into things, ask us, email us, message us on any of our social media, um, find reliable resources to educate yourselves on these topics. Because again, there are a lot of misconceptions around the work that we are doing here on this podcast. Um, and what that comes from is misunderstandings on a large scale, stereotypes and um, sensational media, that sort of thing. So um, have those conversations with other people, but have them with yourself first. Check in with yourself and, and see what your own biases are. Um, maybe go back through our podcasts and re-listen to some that, that really interests you or that you've never thought about before. Um, I think that's one really great way to support Domestic Violence Awareness Month, both this October and year-round. Yeah, absolutely. Um, making an effort to educate yourself and then use that education to inform the people that are in your lives as well. And just having that conversation opening up those topics. Don't let something slide by because it would be uncomfortable to say something. Because every time you do that, you're just allowing that behavior to continue. Yeah. And please, not just in October, but every month of the year, support survivors and victims and believe them. Believing them is going to be that first step to helping them on their healing journeys. And you have no idea how important that is that a victim feels believed and safe talking to somebody else. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a great time for us to kind of wrap this episode up. Um, I'm really glad that we revisited this topic, especially with Amanda's input. Um, Sierra, if you're listening, we miss you. We miss your input, but <laughs> we love more voices. That's why we have guests on our podcast all the time. So, um, yeah, I think this is great. If you guys have any questions, Sean will, you know, list all of our socials at the end. Um, this is a reminder that we love talking with our listeners. We love hearing your thoughts. Um, so please don't hesitate to reach out. And it doesn't have to be on a podcast. If you want a quiet conversation with one of us, let us know and we can have a private conversation with you. Um, we can give you resources to local agencies that can also assist. Yes. So thank you all for listening today. Please feel free to message us on and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Touchy Subs Pod. Please feel free to email us any questions, comments, or concerns to touchysubjectspodcast at gmail.com. Please also rate us on our socials as well as your favorite podcast listening platform so more people can hear our stories and our information. And in the meantime, don't be afraid to challenge, ask, and discuss when it comes to these touchy subjects. <laughs>